Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, now, please take out the Word of God and turn in it to the book of 2 Kings in the Old Testament, And chapter number two, if you don't happen to have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you. You could take that Bible, turn to page 273, and you would be parked at 2 Kings chapter two. We've been involved in a series of messages we've entitled Ordinary to Extraordinary on the Life of Elijah. And if you've been with us in this series, you know it has been an encouraging and challenging series. Now, it's been especially encouraging because Elijah is really a regular, ordinary guy like us. In James 5, 17, it says that he had a nature like ours. And part of what we see him going through is encouraging because we realize that we're very much like him. You know, he experienced fear and loneliness in his spiritual walk. And you might remember after his greatest victory, what happens? He runs away. He runs away, and he hides from Queen Jezebel. He goes through severe discouragement. He falls into self-pity. He even prays that he might die. He's basically ready to quit the spiritual race. And then you might remember, he runs like uh, Forrest Gump 40 days through the desert. He ends up hiding in a cave where he's saying basically to God, why? And then he claims he's the only righteous man left. So this is a very encouraging series we've seen as we've looked at the life of Elijah, but it's also challenging. It's challenging because Elijah believed, I mean really believed in God's promises. Elijah had boldness to face a hostile culture. Elijah called for public confrontation in the spiritual community. Elijah mocked 450 prophets of Baal. He took them on, one against 450. He raised a boy from the dead. And through prayer, he accomplished great things. So it's not only encouraging, but it's a little bit challenging, calling us up. You know, Scripture honors Elijah. Second only to Moses, he is the most mentioned Old Testament character in the New Testament. God honors Elijah. We we see it on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that? You can look it up in Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. But when Jesus appears and his glory is pulled back, who's there with him? Moses and Elijah. And if you've been with us on our study, we've tracked him. We've tracked him from Gilead, which was in the mountain country where he was from, east of Israel. And then we tracked him from from there to the brook Cherith. We tracked him to the widow's house. We saw him then at Mount Carmel. We saw him go out into the wilderness. We saw him take up in a cave on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. We saw him in the vineyard of Naboth. Now, as we've been tracking him, there are some things in his story that we have skipped over. For example, we have skipped over 1 Kings 19, where he appoints Elisha as his successor. You can go read about that. We've also skipped over his confrontation of King Ahab's son, who was King Ahaziah, and, and, and he confronts him in the first chapter of 2 Kings. And so you might want to go and read that. There's some interesting things in that chapter. But today, we come to 2 Kings chapter 2, which is Elijah's last day 
and I have entitled the message, Chariot of Fire. And I want to read the first 14 verses of chapter 2 of 2 Kings, and I invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read. It says, Now it came about when the Lord was about to take Elijah up by a whirlwind to heaven that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they both went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And Elisha said, Yes, I know. Be still. Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, this is Elisha speaking, and as you yourself live, Elijah, I will not leave you. So they both came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And Elisha answered, Yes, I know, be still. And then Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And Elisha replied, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them, this is now at the river Jordan, while the two of them stood by the river. And Elijah took his mantle, his cloak, and folded it together and struck the waters, and they were divided here and there so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And when they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please, Let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And Elijah said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. And as they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he also took up the mantle, the cloak of Elijah that fell from Elijah and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the waters and said, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the waters, they were divided here and there and Elijah crossed over. Now, you know, we, we would all agree that it is the norm that we would be unaware of which day would be our last day. Is that not the norm? That is the norm. But occasionally, I think, God gives some insight to people. Occasionally, in His grace, He gives an indicator to them. My wife Janet's grandmother, named Isabel, was 105 and a half. Half was very important to her. 105 and a half. And uh, on Tuesday, Janet talked to her, and this is what Isabel said. Jesus told me I'm going to go be with him on Friday. What do you think happened on Friday? She went to be with Jesus. See, the norm is we're unaware which day may be our last, but occasionally God gives insight and gives an indicator 
And here, apparently, in our story, God had communicated to Elijah, who maybe then also communicated to Elisha, and he also had communicated to the prophets at these various schools of the prophets at these various stops they were making, that this was going to be the day that would be Elijah's last day on this planet. You know, most of you are aware that I've had to face cancer two different times, and when you're facing cancer, and, and you know that that could limit your time on the planet, it influences your perspective, your perspective about life and death. And I still remember the first time I got word of that and how serious it was. I remember walking around and observing people, and I was just noticing something, and the way they interacted and everything, they were largely unaware of the fragileness of life. And I was looking at it face to face. And, and, you, and you know, when, you, when you're dealing with something like that, it affects your perspective about life and your perspective about priorities. Now, I want you to imagine for just a moment that you were maybe the exception to the rule, and God would tell you, you know, you've got weeks, you've got maybe months to live, What difference would it make in your life? Well, for one thing, you might say, well, I don't know that I would get angry so easily if I knew I only had so many days left. Or maybe you would say, I'm going to dismiss holding a grudge as a complete waste of time. Maybe, and I know this is part of how I felt, maybe you would say, you know what, I would express appreciation more freely than I have. I would give hugs. I would say, I love you more. If you knew you were facing your last days, you might say, well, the state of the world would be far less distressing to me. I mean, this is not my home. I'm going someplace else. Maybe you would look forward to the glory of heaven and the reunions that would be there. No doubt if you thought you were facing your last days, you might choose to simplify your life. I need to simplify things a little bit. Maybe you would share the good news of the gospel more freely. No doubt you would think strategically every day that you had. Now, so here's the question. If we would do that then, knowing that, why not now? Why not now choose to think strategically every day of our life? The Heidelberg Catechism, written in, guess where, Heidelberg, Germany, 1563, nearly 455 years ago, was a typical typical catechism, and what they would do with catechisms, it would be a question and answer format, and they would train you in biblical theology with that, so they would ask a question, and then you would memorize the biblical answer. And in the Heidelberg Catechism, here's the very first question that gets asked. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer you were to give is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life 
and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. One thing that we learn from Elijah is he is living strategically on his last day. Look at at chapter 2 and and verse 1 again. You know, they start out, Elijah and Elisha together in Gilgal, and then they go from Gilgal, and he says, I got to go to Bethel. And then they get there, and then he says, I got to go to Jericho. And then they get there, and he says, I got to go to the Jordan River. Now, we're not overly familiar with all the geography, but if you take those trips from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho to the Jordan River, that is maybe some 40 miles They are not riding motor scooters. They are walking. And we know that Elijah was not some rickety old guy who couldn't make it around. 40 miles on his last day. But he was living strategically. You know, we have seen him kind of disappear from the book of 1 Kings several different times when he just seems to go away for a while. And the question is, what was he doing in those times when he was out of our view? And I think we learn in chapter 2 what he was doing. He was investing in the lives of others. At each of these stops that he makes, Bethel, Jericho, and the Jordan River, there is a school of the prophets that is there. These prophets that he has been involved in investing in them spiritually and in training them spiritually. He's been building into the up-and-coming generation. And, And why did he do that? He knew that he was not going to be here forever. And by the way, men and women, the same thing is true of us. We are not going to be here forever. So we need to be living strategically. And at the core of living strategically, it means we're doing some things. For example, if you have children in your home, you're going to live strategically. You need to be training your own children spiritually, setting the example for them and building into them. If we're going to be living strategically, you know, that's one of the reasons why at Wildwood we have a children's ministry. So we're building into all of these young lives that are yet wet cement. It's why we have the Awana ministry and we're building some uh, scripture memory into our children. It's why we have a student ministry. It's why we have a college ministry. It's why we get involved as a church family because we want to be strategic in investing in world outreach. Many of you know that a number of years ago, back in the 90s, we started uh, Latvian Christian Radio in the nation of Latvia. And we also have a radio program there that's broadcast two times every week called Treasures for Every Day, where we take the messages that I deliver here at Wildwood, they are transcribed, they're translated into Latvian, and then they're communicated on the radio by a leading actor in Latvia. And I'm telling you, I am totally convinced, I know many of the stories, that when we get to heaven one day, there are going to be some Latvian friends in heaven who are going to thank us for being strategic in getting involved in something like that. And we're involved in multiple ministries around the world. Why do we do that? Because we're living strategically. We want to build into the coming generation because we're not always going to be here. And, you know, part of that is, is, is training spiritual leaders, not only here, but even worldwide. And we're looking at that more uh, as a leadership team. Like, how can we continue to be strategic and build into 
the up-and-coming generation. If we're going to live strategically, it also means that we share the way of hope. We share the truth of the gospel. We do it with our neighbors. We do it with our coworkers. We do it with our fellow students. And so we see that in Elijah. He's living strategically. He's not always going to be here. So he's building into the up-and-coming generation. Now, there's another very striking thing that we saw when we read through this chapter, and that is the, the three-time thing that goes on with Elisha. You know, three times, Elijah says to Elisha, stay here, the Lord is leading me to, you know, first Bethel, and then, then to Jericho, and then to the Jordan River. And he says that to Elisha three times, and three times Elisha's response is what? I will not leave you. I'm going with you. Now, what is actually happening there? What is Elijah doing by not just asking this once, but twice and three times? What's happening? Well, I believe that what Elijah was doing was testing Elisha's spiritual tenacity. And every follower of Jesus needs to have spiritual tenacity if we're going to effectively live strategically. Because you see, we always have enemies fighting against us. One of the enemy, enemies is Satan and all of his forces. And, and, and we're involved, whether we believe it or not and realize it or not, every single day in spiritual warfare. And we have the enemy that's always coming at us, in some ways trying to get us to not do the will of God. And then we have the world system that's out there that's trying to squeeze us into its mold to try to make us think like they think and act like they act. And then we have the, the enemy of our own flesh, which can derail us from walking with God and living strategically. And so in light of all of those things, we have to battle, sort of like swimming upstream. Uh, every follower of Jesus needs spiritual tenacity if we're going to live strategically. It's exactly what Paul communicated to Timothy. In Paul's last letter to Timothy, I want you to notice how much he talks about spiritual tenacity. He says in chapter 1 and verse 13 to Timothy, retain the standard of sound words which you've heard from me. Stick with the truth. Verse 14 of chapter 1, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you, which was not only the word of God, but was the gospel message of salvation that leads people to hope. He says in chapter 2 and verse 1, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You need to have spiritual tenacity, Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Be diligent, work hard at presenting yourself approved to God, handling accurately the word of truth. People always mishandle this book. Don't you do that. You need to be tenacious in that. And then in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Continue in the things that you have learned. This is spiritual tenacity. You from child have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom. You need to always be garnering wisdom. Keep doing that. And then in chapter 4 and verse 5, he says to him, always be sober-minded, be clear-headed, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He's saying to Timothy, spiritual tenacity is what you need if you're going to live strategically. Now, I want us to all understand, because I want to give ourselves a little bit of a break here. Spiritual tenacity does not mean that we don't trip and fall down. 
Spiritual tenacity does not mean that we don't get knocked down. Because we look at the life of Elijah and what happened? He fell down several times. He got knocked down a few times. Spiritual tenacity, though, means that when we fall down, when we're knocked down, we get back up. And we get back up in his power and his grace. Elijah knew it was his last day. And yet there's no panic, there's no fear, there's no dread. He just is very much at rest in God's hands. And in in chapter 2, verse 9, he asked that question of Elisha. What would you like me to do for you? And what was Elisha's response? Man, I'd like a double portion of your spirit. Now, some of that language is not something we really understand. But, you know, in, in their culture, you would have multiple sons, and the oldest son would receive a double portion of the estate And that's part of what Elisha is saying. I'm like your adopted spiritual son, and you know what? I want a double portion of your spirit. And and that question, what would you like me to do for you, reminds me of when God approached Solomon. You remember that? And God says, I will give you a request. What is your request? And you remember that Solomon does not say, well, you know what? What I need is I really need a lot of money. Or I need the latest chariot, you know? Or I want a fat stock portfolio. Or what I really need, God, is this really big fancy house with a lot of pools and everything else. Or what I really would like to have is this incredible surging business. He could have answered all of those things, but God God said, I will give you what you request, but what does Solomon say? You know what I'd like to have, God, is a heart of wisdom. It just reminds me of Elisha. What do you want me to do for you? Uh, You know what I'd like? I would like a double portion of your spirit. I want a double portion of your fortitude. I want a double portion of your boldness. I want a double portion of your perspective about things. I haven't actually figured this out, but someone has calculated when you look at the miracles that Elijah did and the miracles that Elisha did, Elisha did two times more miracles than Elijah When you look at the length of Elijah's ministry, the ministry of Elisha was two times longer. You know, a big part in all of this is understanding God's greatness and his power. And we, you know, we see him going up, you know, in this big flash up into heaven. And as he goes, Elijah leaves behind his cloak, his mantle, and Elisha picks it up. And where does he go? He goes right to the river Jordan. And what does he do? He puts it in the water just the way Elijah did. And then he basically is saying, God, work in the same way that you worked with Elijah. You know, and part of what's going on there is everyone needs to learn to trust God for themselves. You cannot inherit this. You have to learn to trust God for yourself. And that's exactly what Elisha does. And just as Elijah had touched the Jordan with his cloak and it had opened up and then they could cross on dry land, so the same thing happened with Elisha. What's the common thing between Elijah and Elisha? The common thing is the greatness of the power of God. You know, how did Elijah do what Elijah did? I mean, how did he do that? 
How does Elisha do two times more what Elijah did? I mean, how do they actually pull that off? Well, there are several clues given to us. I want to look at them. The first clue is the name of Elijah. You remember, we looked at this when we were back in uh, chapter 17 of 1 Kings. His name is an amalgamation of things. The E-L is the word for God in the original language. The J-A-H is really the word for Yahweh or Jehovah. And the I is the word in the original for my. And so literally, the name Elijah means the Lord is my God. How did Elijah do what he did? Well, part of the clue is in his name. The second clue we get are the very first words that come out of Elijah's mouth when we first see him appearing on the scene in chapter 17 and verse 1 of 1 Kings. The very first words that come out of his mouth are, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. How did he do what he was able to do? He had this deep confidence, this deep awareness of the presence of God in his life. And when we have a deep confidence and awareness in the presence of God, this is what happens. When we have a deep confidence and awareness in the presence of God, we come to love what he loves. We come to hate what he hates. We come to think what he thinks. We come to see what he sees, and we begin to concern ourselves with his concerns. Very important clue here, this deep confidence and awareness of the presence and the power of God. There's a third clue that is given to us about how they pulled this off, both Elijah and Elisha. And we have to go over a couple of chapters to the right in our Bible to 2 Kings chapter 6 where we have the story of Elisha and his servant. Now, this is one of my all-time favorite passages. I I love this passage. And I think it gives us insight into what Elijah taught Elisha, and then in turn, Elisha is going to teach his servant the same truth. And um, what happens in this whole section is the king of Aram, who is warring against Israel, becomes enraged because he's moving his armies around, And every time he moves his troops around, there's a counter move by the troops of Israel. And so he finally ends up saying, there's got to be a spy somewhere. And they said, yeah, sort of a spy. It's this guy named Elisha. And God gives him divine insight as you move your troops around so he has counter movements for the nation of Israel. And the king of Aram goes, I want to get that guy. I want to get that guy. And so what he does in verse 14 is he sends out horses and chariots, you know, all these tanks and everything else, and a great army to where Elisha is, and they came by night, they sneaked in by night, and they surround the city. All this giant army is around there. And then what happens in verse 15, uh, you have Elisha's servant, the attendant to the man of God, he gets up early and he goes out, and he, you know, it's kind of a little bit drowsy, and he's just kind of, you know, clearing his head, and he's starting to look around, and he goes, oh my goodness, look, Look all the way around. There's the armies of Aram. We're completely surrounded. We are totally surrounded. Oh, my goodness. 
What are we going to do? He comes to Elisha. He says at the end of verse 15, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And then I just love Elisha's response in verse 16. He says, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Servant goes, and it kind of spins around. The ones that are with us are more than the ones that are with them? Wait a second. There's two of us here. I don't get it. And then you have verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. That the Lord, and then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He basically was praying, would you give him a reality view of your greatness and your power? And God did it. See, the lesson we learned from Elijah and also from Elisha is that one person plus God is more than enough. One person plus God is more than sufficient. And God calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And we may be ordinary, but we're called by God to do extraordinary things. You know, Elijah is known for his prayer life. And sometimes, you know, we think, I don't have a lot of energy in my prayer life. I'm not sure what I pray for. I don't know. I, just seem, I can't seem to really get much prayer done. But here was a guy who was known for his prayer life. How was his prayer life fueled? By the greatness of God and his power. See, Elijah didn't pray to an anemic God. He had a real picture of who God was and the power that he had. And you know what the real hero of this story of Elijah is? The real hero of the story of Elijah is God himself. Open his eyes that he may see, Elisha says. And Paul writes a similar thing to the believers in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 1 and verse 19, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, that you would see, and what is he praying for? That you would see the surpassing greatness of God's power. In fact, he says it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead and also seated Christ at the right hand of God, and that power, he says, to those believers resides inside of you. Inside of you. In fact, he even goes on in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. He says that God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond everything we could ask or even think according to his power, here comes the key phrase, which works within us. He's able to do, because of the greatness of his power, exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could even imagine to ask or even imagine to think about. That's what fueled the prayer life of Elijah. God calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God calls ordinary people like us to do extraordinary things. Do you believe it? Elijah says, believe it. Believe it. You know, when I think of Elijah and his life story, I think of the lyrics of a song by Chris Rice. Now, I'm not going to sing this, so you can relax, but I am going to read the lyrics to the song. 
This just reminds me so much of Elijah. Weak and wounded sinner, lost and left to die, oh, raise your head for love is passing by. Come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus and live. Now your burden's lifted and carried far away, and precious blood has washed away the stain. So sing to Jesus, sing to Jesus, sing to Jesus and live. And like a newborn baby, don't be afraid to crawl. And remember when you walk, sometimes we fall. So fall on Jesus, fall on Jesus, fall on Jesus, and live. Sometimes the way is lonely and steep and filled with pain. So if your sky is dark and pours the rain, then cry to Jesus, cry to Jesus, cry to Jesus, and live. And oh, when the love spills over and music fills the night, and when you can't contain your joy inside, then dance for Jesus, dance for Jesus, dance for Jesus, and live. And with your final heartbeat, kiss the world goodbye, then go in peace and laugh on glory's side. And fly to Jesus, fly to Jesus, fly to Jesus, and live. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the life of Elijah. We thank you that he was a man just like us, made out of the same cloth that we are. And yet he was someone who understood your greatness and understood your power. He lived strategically. May we be that kind of men and women that we might believe that you indeed call on ordinary people to do extraordinary things. For the honor of the Savior, we pray in his name. Amen. 